This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Because if you can tell me what your habits are, I can tell you what sort of a person you are. I can tell you what your future looks like. But like I always say, life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% what you do about it. The people who are most effective in the workplace believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to The Circuit of Success, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve success in every facet of life, only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Now, your host, Brett Gilliland. Welcome to The Circuit of Success. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland. Today, I'm excited. I've got Gabe Lozano with me. What's up, Gabe? It's great to be here. Hey, man. It's good to see you. It's been a while. You uh, you conquering the world? Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet, but you're trying. You're doing a damn good job of it, man. You are the co-founder and CEO of Decide, formerly Locker Dome, and uh, you guys are here in St. Louis in the startup community, which is uh, which is amazing community, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But man, let's let's give a little background if we can first, Gabe, of just kind of what's made you the man you are today. I think you grew up here in St. Louis, right? And 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 some of those things. It's what's gotten you where you are right now. So I don't think I worked on anything particularly interesting until I was 24. So I'm not sure what got me here. But I, I grew up in St. Louis. We had a family of eight. Grew up in Bridgeton. Went to Pattonville. People in St. Louis yeah. didn't know the high school. So yeah. not, not a private or Catholic high school. Yeah. But I really enjoyed the time in St. Louis of growing up. Just a lot of like really good interactions. There's a lot of community. There's a lot of pride of being here. And then post that, I... Played baseball, so I like to tell people I played division terrible baseball. <laughs> <laughs> My brother had gone to a school called Milliken, and it's oh, over sure. in Illinois. It's kind of I, I still at this point hadn't thought much about anything, so it's kind of what do you, you know? Do you like it? He's like, yeah, and I like playing baseball, so I, I followed him there. And then post college is really where I started to get the itch to work on stuff. My dad was an entrepreneur, particularly in the tech space. So just started toying with some ideas. I took a job right out of school, met some people, and the early versions of Lockerdome actually were just a byproduct of working on ideas that had nothing to do with Lockerdome okay. and attracted some people to work with me. And fast forward today. We now the rest is history. You got How many employees do you guys have? We have 80. 80 employees. Yeah. So I've gone from nothing to 80 employees. And that's been since what, 08? Yeah, so we took a check in 08, and, but okay. we started tinkering with stuff before that. Okay. So July 4th of 08 is typically where we would call it like the founding date. It's the inception date. date. Yeah, we took a $50,000 check, but you know, the idea is in anything, you just get started and you kind of like accrue a little bit of success. Yeah. Most time people wrap up history stuff in a cleaner way. So if I wanted to like say like our founding date was July 4th of 08, then everyone would agree to that. But there was quite a bit of work that happened even before we had a company. Yeah. Yeah, you got to have some work done to kind of lead up to ask somebody for a check, don't you? So talk to our listeners, uh, obviously a lot of St. Louis listeners, but talk to our listeners about the St. Louis startup community. I mean, how important that is. You, I mean, obviously born and bred out of that. A lot of good things have happened here. So what, what's cooking in that scene right now? Honestly, I feel like I'm a little disconnected from the startup community in St. Louis because I don't really view our company as a startup and I'm out, out there cutting checks or doing kind of early stage deals. You know, one of the ways I look at it is unless you're actively building something from scratch, 
you don't have a pulse on what that piece fully looks like. What I really like is I like seeing that there's a lot more maturity in the scene right now. There are real companies. We've had companies in the scene that have started to go public. Yeah. We have companies that have moved beyond starts where they can stably pay people's paychecks. So in our case, we became profitable in 2017 and we've been paying our bills ever since. So it's not just having 80 employees. We could have a lot more employees if we want to be aggressive, but we're 80 employees that get paid really well and we can do it as a profitable company, yeah. which we're proud of. And I've seen that really across the scene as a whole. There are different segments of the scene. You know, the, one of the areas where we have a lot of connections is in the cultivation capital community. Yep. And that's a pretty extensive community. It's been neat for me to actually see something like that built from nothing because one of my early mentors was Brian Matthews. And so still a mentor, still a friend. But early on, Brian was actually one of the first ones that actually started pushing really hard into kind of building more institutional capital that could be injected into these early stages. So his theme at the time was, hey, you can go out and get a $10,000, $25,000, $50,000 check, but where's the $250,000 check and beyond? And that gap, if you got far enough along, you, you can go find that money elsewhere, or even yeah. kind of internal. But that, that real gap of $250,000 and beyond he got really interested in, and so did a variety of other people. Tom Hillman has done a great yeah. job and just a collection of, you know, different areas of this ecosystem. So for, for me, it's more there's a pride, but I would say today there's not 100% pulse on all the little pieces within it. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely a lot that goes in there. I think what Jim McKelvey is one of the founders of Square, right? And, and so he's a St. Louis guy, and I know, I think, is he, he was on your board or is on your yeah. board or something like that. And so what, what do you learn from guys like that, man? When you're around it, they've built something. Square is obviously a, you know, a big company now. What are you learning from guys like that? So Jim was on my board for seven years, a fantastic guy. One of the things you learn is that people that are really successful, they're always curious, they continue to keep going, and they're accessible. Yeah. And so these are traits that a lot of people actually ignore. And so a lot of times it's interesting with success, people will, will kind of give this back history of, I did all these magical things and they were in my head and we did them correct and yeah. we succeeded. Jim got started as an entrepreneur when he was 18. I believe he wow. took a class at WashU and CompSci and then you know, started rewriting a CompSci textbook. And he started years after that doing glass blowing. He had a publishing company. He's done a variety of things. Everybody today thinks about Jim McKelvey as Jim McKelvey, billionaire. Right. But that happened a bit later in his life. Jim is a really smart guy who's worked really hard for a really long period of time. Yeah. And when you kind of scan around the ecosystem, I look at other people that you know, we professionally have interacted with. Somebody like Jim Cavanaugh is another great example. Yeah. Jim Cavanaugh is not just one of the nicest guys that you will ever meet. He is curious and he is consistent. <laughs> he literally just keeps going. Right? He's been in this game for 30 plus years at this point. And Roger Reine is another guy. Just enormous respect for him. I think before he exited that deal, he did it for 37 years. Yeah. Right? And so that, that, that thing that I've noticed, there's um, Ben Horde's quote, and I can't remember it verbatim off the top of my head right now. But essentially what he was saying was, you know, there's a difference between, you know, mediocre and great CEOs and the mediocre CEOs, they tend to kind of have all these excuses why they quit or they have all these self-congratulatory reasons of why they're successful. And he said that great CEOs are remarkably consistent in their answers. And they <laughs> just say when he asked them why they were successful and they just say I didn't quit. And so that from uh, McKelvey to a Kavanaugh to a Riney to a lot of people that we've met that have had decent success. 
that that's what I've learned is, you know, you just keep going yeah. and then you do it with a high level of curiosity and a high level of accessibility. Yeah, I love that too. And you said the high level of curiosity, it's so important in, in, in everyday life, but especially when you're trying to build something, what are the, what about the, you talk about never quit? What about the days that you just didn't feel like doing it or the days you felt like you're just getting kicked in the shins over and over and over, you know, you just, I mean, you're just out in the streets, right? Just getting abused, but you kept going, man. You had a mission, you had a drive, you had whatever it was. What was it in those times that kept you going and how did you do that? Well, every day I felt like that. <laughs> like I feel like that this morning. Yeah. I think that's uh, building a business and building anything meaningful. It's just brutal yeah. and it doesn't matter who you are, what industry, what scale you are. It's never not brutal. So the the question is, is this something that you want to work on? And what's interesting for me as I look at my career so far is two phases. I would say I'm finally on act two, you know, <laughs> act one, I was just a kid and I never yeah. worked hard on anything in my life. And so I tell people I was 24 when I turned my brain on Yeah, and you're like, Oh, it's kind of interesting. I've learned something I can apply it and you start working but it's really fucking hard to find yeah. success. Yeah. And so you're just trying to get people that are like, Hey, I want to come work really hard with you. And you know, that, that stage, it's interesting because once you start getting a lot of momentum, you get a lot of credibility when you go from nothing to people who are paying attention. It's interesting for somebody like me. I'm, I'm not shy, but I'm fairly introverted. And so yeah. The idea of just feedback and ecosystems can be really hard. And so you get a lot of high fives and that's just as hard. And a lot of times as getting beat up. You're just impressed and all sorts of things. Yeah. You're just, you're, you're getting feedback back from the real world on, on things you're working on and thinking about and positive, negative, but really, you know, that you have a lot of work to do. It's like, you're staring in the face and you need to actually deliver back a paycheck to somebody. You need to deliver back financial results or returns to other people. And so there's a theme that I thought about really early on or I've talked about this to our employees and I've talked about to others, where I said, what's the responsibility you have when you get started and people join you? And the responsibility you have is to give people a return on their time, their money, and their reputation points. And so people can give you all three of those or some combination of those. And you know, somebody may give you a check and say, well, I'm a quiet investor. And so they've given you money and you have a responsibility to return that. Yeah. But there's just a variety of ways people interact with you. And honestly, in a lot of ways, once you get started, that's the thing that keeps you in the game is you never want to be the person that lost that for people. Um, I had to think, rethink about this in a really deep way in 2020 because I lost my wife. Yeah. And so we, on one, two of 2020, uh, Rach and I, and I re received a text from her that she needed to get checked out. Uh, short in the story, you know, we end up from urgent care to the hospital. 56 days later, she died. And when you go through a process like that, you do kind of like reset and you take a step back. And so it was really interesting and we can, I'm happy to like talk about yeah, it in that sure. process and like dive into those. But coming out the other end of this on 12-27 of 2020 was when I felt fully re-engaged to opt back in. <laughs> and so that, that's where I would say I started act two, where it's, I came back with an enormous amount of energy to participate not just in this company, but just in life. And yeah. just like, and on, and so on, on this, what keeps me motivated is not just those first things I talked about. So in those first, in the first uh, act one, you know, it's that, you know, given a return on those three, the time, money, reputation points. Act two, it's doing that, but also being able to express the ideas that are in my head and the products that we build. And so act, act two, we've been, you know, a lot more aggressive. We are resetting in a lot of ways. 
but we're doing it with the foundation of a phenomenal team that I really enjoy working with and really smart people and a strong f financial foundation from a company standpoint, but also with a market that's really prime for a lot of the ideas that are coming out of our heads. And so let's talk about that, man. You, you did go through a lot with Rachel and you guys, I think, what was it? 14 years you guys were together. Is that right? 14 and a half years. Yeah. 14 yeah. and a half years. And, and it wasn't uh, the easiest 14 and a half years, right? She had a lot of health issues and yeah. things. And, and toward that last, uh, I think you said 56 days. I mean, what did you learn through that just about life to, to maybe shed light on the rest of us, right? We take life for granted. Sometimes we just run and gun. And I know there's been, been a pandemic going on. And, and sometimes people have a health scare and that wakes them up. And, and so you've been through hell and back on that. And so what, what was, what's something you could share with us to say, wake up, man, smell the roses and enjoy life. Well, for me, it's, we thought about this a lot. So when Rach was in the hospital the last time, that was clearly not the first time that we had to knock, yeah. you know, death, their stare death in the face. Yeah. And it was just the last time we did it. So we, we, over the many years, we thought about what that meant back into our own relationship and, Last year, at the end of last year, I was thinking a lot about Rachel, and I kind of put three rules down. It was just kind of for every person, be kind, be intentional, keep going. Yeah. And, and that's what you really learn is the human experience. It's very obvious that it's hard when somebody dies. So many look in and are like, man, you're in your 30s and you lost your wife. But the reality is the human experience is brutal for everybody. And yeah. if I got you offline and we weren't talking you know, in this fashion, and there'd be so many things that you can uncover about your life. We're like, this is hard and this is hard. And I'd be like, yep, that is really hard. Yeah. And that, that's that been true for everybody I've spoken to. So for, for me, kind of translating it back to everybody else, those three rules just feel generically okay, which is when you're kind, it's being kind to yourself and being kind to other people. You know, we're all doing our best just trying to navigate the world. Yeah. And it's like, I tell people we're a party of one that just happens to be interacting with billions of people. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I, I don't know all the thoughts in your head and I don't know all the unique experiences you've ever had. And there's no way you could ever translate that all to me. And so being kind means being respectful to that. And being kind to yourself means that you're imperfect and you're evolving person. Uh, being intentional means being intentional in everything that you do. So let's imagine you're going through the grief process. The grief process for me was... I want to re-participate in life. Like I, right after Rach died, I would meet widows and widowers and I joined a couple groups. And what was hard about it was there was actually a lot of like, there's this common theme of being a victim. And it's like, I don't feel like a victim. I feel grateful for the fact that I had 14 and a half amazing years with an amazing person. And so way I looked at it was Rach died. I didn't. And what's next for me. And so being intentional for me was how do I become intentional with grief? And, and I actually bucketed those in three categories. And so I kind of looked at this as locking the memories, process those memories, create new memories. And so a good example was I defied what most people would say was good logic up front, which is I went and moved, I bought a house. And so on 421 of 20, I closed, 422 of 20. So I got it everything in by about 8 p.m. that day. Next day by about 9 p.m., so 25 hours later, I had everything in place. And, but what the process, what was interesting about that was this to me was locking in memories. I had 14 and a half years with an individual where we literally had a place we lived together. And so I had to go through all these items in, in our house. And you're like, you're, you're going through and Rachel would create stuff. So she journaled since she was a teenager and she would create oh. artwork and 
What was really interesting is even in the years that we were together, so dating back clear, we weren't together when she was a teenager, but even years together, like reanimating history through the eyes of somebody else. And it's a really unique experience for grief. It's an important experience. There were items that picked up and it's like we had a shared experience where we bought something together. And so you look at that and say, okay, I'm going to put it in a bin and I'm going to store this because that's not something. And then close somebody bought and you're reanimating all these moments in your head and you can kind of go on and on, but it, there's, a, there's an entire, you know, you have these heuristics of like moving through every item in your house. And what you get out of that is I'm locking in memories because I'll never create a new memory with this person. And then after that, you have a lot to process. And so when I moved, a lot of it was you'll have a lot to do. And so I would tell people you need this idea of keeping your mind free and your hands busy. So I, I installed 96 Wi-Fi enabled light bulbs. And... <laughs> It's like, doesn't make any sense other yeah. than it's just what you did. Uh, yeah, installing 96 Wi-Fi enabled light bulbs actually just takes time. Right. And so there, there was these like little projects I would do like that. Cause that would keep it, your mind off the, yeah, you know, the like sadness. You can do it with literally the, yeah. no thinking. It's like, it's, you're doing it on autopilot yeah. and yeah. And, but it literally takes human time to do. And so you're, you're just processing these things. And then the, the neat part was on, or 7-Eleven, I decided, I was like, all right, well, I feel like I've processed this. Now I want to create new memories. And so when you're creating new memories, yeah. if you do it in an ecosystem, your brain's really good at kind of storing prior states and then making some relevant interaction in, in that state. So in St. Louis, I grew up in St. Louis, but I, I can't go anywhere in St. Louis without thinking about rage. Like yeah. I go down a street and you would just, you can recall in just these incredibly detailed ways, like, oh, we had dinner here on this particular date. And and you almost everywhere in St. Louis, you just spend a lot of time with somebody and you have that. And so that's, that's an interesting step. When you want to create new memories, you need to free up a little bit of that and say like, okay, well, if I went into a city I've never been in before, well, there are humans, we can interact and there are experiences. Like I'm still, I don't have to relearn everything. I can walk, I can run, I can go eat somewhere, but I haven't eaten at this restaurant before. I haven't walked down this street. And so one really unique thing that happened that, that was in that was I, I, just, I didn't know I liked to hike. And so Rach had never heard me say, I want to hike. I love hiking. And that wasn't really her thing, you know, either. And so it was, I was in Oklahoma city and I had done some lightweight hiking in Arkansas and not exactly the best place to hike. It was just like exploring Sweet the idea. Yeah. I get in Oklahoma city and then I go about a hundred miles out into Wichita Hills and I'm walking around and I was like, it just started to feel a little bit more like magic. But one interesting thing was I jump off this boulder. I'm like probably too excited, jump off this boulder and one of my ankles twist. And so my left ankle, I had sprained this back in high school. So it's always kind of like, re, it's really easy to re-sprain yeah. and it twists. And I was like, oh yeah, it's like when I played baseball post that, I would always have to wear an ankle bracelet. Rach had never seen me wear an ankle bracelet because I never had to do anything that felt in this category. So when I got over to Albuquerque, which was the next stop, I was doing that. I wanted to do the La Luz Trail. And before that, earlier in the day, I ended up doing the 10K Trailhead as well. And I went and bought at REI an uh, ankle bracelet. And it was like in that moment that was really interesting for me because I was thinking about this idea of this is what creating new memories feels like. It's, I've never enjoyed hiking or never spoken about joy hiking around Rach. She's never seen me wear an ankle bracelet. <laughs> and so I'm like doing these activities that, that felt disconnected, but felt connected. 
And then the, like kind of pulling all that together, one really like magical moment for me was, so the La Luz Trail is uh, 13.3 miles. And so you're, you're, how you're doing, it's an out and back. So you're doing 6.25 doing, or whatever, doing like switchbacks. And I'm getting up and about the last two miles of this, it's not well paved. And so you can imagine like these big rocks that are like boulders and you're kind of navigating and you are just effing exhausted. <laughs> and in, in particular, I didn't actually have a, a great hiking backpack because I was new to this at the right. time. So I, I dumped like, I just did dumb things. Like I had dumped some like Gatorade bottles in there and then some water. And it's like, I almost- I think this is what I should take. Right? I'm almost completely out of liquids and I'm completely parched. And I still have a couple miles to go. I also didn't have like a backup battery for my phone. And I look at my phone and said, it looks like, you know, I have like about, you know, uh, you know, one to two hours ish of battery life if I want to listen to music and I wanted to get up this last stretch. And so what I did, which was really unique for me, was I revisited the playlist that we use when my wife died. And mm. so there was your what's interesting about music is kind of like how you how this recalls stuff in different ways. Like if I say a particular word you probably can't remember when you learn that particular word. Yeah. But if I give you a concept like a song, a lot of times you can almost like replay a part of your life. Absolutely. In this real, yeah, in this really concrete sort of way. So for like this, the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> takes you back to high school, or at least me for my yeah. age, right? <laughs> well, I didn't watch the Super Bowl, so it's like I don't... <laughs> yeah. Uh, concept. yeah. But yeah, it does. It is me. Every time you listen to music in general, it, you know, it kind of pulls you back. Yeah. And so the day that Rach had died one of the activities we did together was literally build a playlist together of the song she wanted to die to mm -hmm. and so it was 101 minutes of of music and uh that was literally where going through we're like adding this to a playlist and she would do like a thumbs up thumbs down after we listened to part of it and so when she did terminal weaning and when they literally started that process you know like we hit play and we said goodbye to each other and so I, I played this playlist for this like last stretch to get up the oh loose trail and it's just, I'm crying and it's my brain is reanimating this in just extreme detail, like every single moment. And then I get up to the top and everything felt faded in the background because it was like, I'm doing something really hard, but it wasn't nearly as hard as watching your wife die. And so I get to the top and then I'm like, man, I actually made it to the top. And I, I didn't have much water left. I didn't have any food. Battery was basically dead at this spot when I finally got to the top. But then getting back down, it was pretty easy. So I, I'm wow. like, remember just kind of like going down and I've got this like new energy and I passed somebody and I was like, oh, this is great. She's like, how many times have you done this trail? I was like, eh, first time I just started hiking. <laughs> and it was just like this like renewed energy and then the rest of it is kind of like you fade back from is like in that moment the memories i wanted was actually to replay memories with my wife because what i was doing was really hard and then when i you know start going back down it's just like silly things happen like i didn't because i didn't have music and didn't really have much water and didn't have any food it's like i had the stupidest craving so the last three miles on the way down even though it's like i'm going at like a zippy pace i don't know why but i was like i want a foot long subway sandwich from uh or foot long uh meatball subway sandwich that on wheat no cheese not toasted and three chocolate <laughs> so you chip can cookies. Think about and that, i i don't know why but i just thought about this for on repeat for the last three miles 
And when I got back, I drank the last tiny little bit of water I'd been saving just in case. And I drove as fast as I could, found a subway. And so I guess plug for subway <laughs> and crush that in a couple minutes. But that, that, you know, that experience was, was pretty unique. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, thanks for sharing that, man. That's um, the grieving process is something people have to go through. And it sounds like you did that with intention, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's a big deal. So um, let's talk, I'm going to talk about three words I wrote down uh, when I think about what you've been through and the process and in business from what I know uh, is unconditional love, success, and commitment. So unconditional love, success, and commitment. When you hear those words, you can talk about them separately if you want, but when you hear those, what comes to mind? So kind of go unconditional love and commitment roughly feel similar to me. So, and then then success is kind of a different category and a, a little bit harder to find. So unconditional love and commitment to me are really interesting because I've thought about this a lot in the context of love romantically and non-romantically. So when I was traveling around, I was in uh, Grand Junction. I, I knew I was going to officiate a, red, a wedding a few weeks later. So I started exploring the idea of like how to express love in words. And my dad had sent these like ramblings of what C.S. Lewis had been talking about before he wrote the book, The Four Loves. And so it's interesting what C.S. Lewis had been exploring with this idea of love was he was saying, well, okay, well, if we scan all the way back to the Greeks, they had a really nuanced way that they looked at this. They would describe the relationship that you were and try to classify it in some way. So they looked at the idea of storge, and they looked at the idea of philia and eros and agape. And they said, okay, well, we essentially have this idea of, you know, family, friends, romantic partner, and rest of the world. So for the Greeks, it was just, you know, the agape would be something like, you know, love of man for all mankind. And so in this case, he was Christian, so he'd say, I love of God for man and man for God. Um, but what was really interesting is what he was trying to explore was maybe we don't just slice them off like this. You know, he went back to Storky and he was thinking about the idea of love with people that we know. And so he said, well, maybe there's this affection through familiarity that, that we gain. And what he was really trying to think about was this idea of when you become more familiar with people, it's how could we use this almost reposition, become better with our friends, become better with our romantic partners or better with the, our interactions with the rest of the world. And got me thinking quite a bit in the context of, so I, I went down this path for a while where the idea that that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's kind of like the more you get to know people that, you know, you end up having some sort of love for them. Right. Yeah. And, and so he described it just in ways like you look at the wrinkles on an old man's face, like your grandparents and you just love it. It's like, that's who <laughs> they are. You look at your dog and other people may say a cute dog, but really you're like, I love that. <laughs> like you don't understand. Right? Yeah. Right. And it's like, it's just a really intense, different sort of way. And so that made a lot of sense to me on a baseline. But then I got to thinking about this idea of there are really two distinct styles of relationships that you see that happen in your life. So I call them trend line versus bubble relationships. So <laughs> trend line relationships are, you can think about it, how every relationship starts. We have some common interaction that we, we try to find common content to start with. And so if somebody likes hiking, someone's like, oh, I've also you know hiked that same trail. And now you get in this deep discussion about it. Or if you get really into rock climbing, you get really into cocktails, or you get really into any activity, you can find people that cross over with that. But we're, we're like these evolving people at all points in our life. We're not, you know, static in anything. 
And so our preferences, our objectives in life, they're just these moving targets over a period of time. So what happens when, let's say, one of your clients that you're friends with loses all his money, you know, for a variety of reasons, let's say it has nothing to do with you. It's like, are you still friends, right? What happens when, you know, the person that used to go and grab drinks with is, you know, a recovering alcoholic, are you still friends, right? Our lives change or the people that you spend a lot of time with at a job together, what happens when they leave or people that you were at school together? And so bubble relationships to me actually are a definition of like your kind of immutable relationships, the ones that are permanent, right? And so they say like, okay, well, we accept that you're just like these evolving humans. It's like, and that we also are imperfect. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I view it as like trend lines, imagine you're literally looking at a chart and it's like, what's something that you're tracking together with? Like you both like rock climbing, so you do it three times a week, you know? And it's like one doesn't like rock climbing, so you're down here and they're up here. Like you have a separation of, you know, or both of you, let's say you're both rich <laughs> or you're both poor, right? And in, in some sort of financial status change, so the trend lines, there's like a point if you imagine you're just moving in time and these things are moving with it, you're not always intersecting with the same stuff, right? And so when you're intersecting, it's very obvious you have content to talk about. But when anything that you intersect with something changes, the question is, do you still have a relationship? And so to me, if you're only following trend lines, when they move too far apart, then they're going to break. And so unconditional love to me is a, it's, the idea that you ignore the details of any particular trend line and in particular because not all trend lines are great, right? It's like we're humans and we make a lot of mistakes despite doing our best all the time. And so unconditional love to me is more of you have somebody that encapsulates all of you irrespective of what the trend lines are. And I think about in this idea of like they can expand and contract without ever, you know, being too far away or without suffocating you. And so that's how like with with somebody like Rach, that's how she always felt to me where, you know, I could make mistakes. I could be an evolving person. My preferences could change. And it was like, she was never too far away. She would just kind of expand with it. And then if something was like contracting, she would kind of come down there with you. But I never felt suffocated and I never felt like she was too far away. And so that, yeah. And, and so that's why that, that idea of commitment is overlaps really well with unconditional love. Because it's easier to commit when you can have this understanding that things change. When you can understand that sometimes things are really good and sometimes things are really bad. There, if you have this assumption that you're really just like evolving with the system when you're in, then, then commitment seems standard. Uh, success is a different one to me. I don't, I mean, I don't feel successful. So that I think success is, you, you, I'm not really sure. It's like, you know, I said not particularly. I, you know, for, I think every human, it's like, we want to be satisfied and that comes in a lot of different flavors. And so for me, one of the things that I notice is particularly on this phase, I literally just want to build the things in my head. <laughs> I just want to, you know, I want to be able to, I don't want to sit around and like talk about like these ideas that can like impact the future. It's like, I want to participate in building the future. And that that's different. Everybody just has a different flavor of what that means. And so if like you're really chasing the idea of success, success is really the acknowledgement for external people outside of yourself of 
this was successful in the system you're working with or it's not. Uh, but if, if that's like a driver, you're going to fucking quit because it's just too hard. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I even like that word. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm. 